And while you're settling in, let me remind you of some things that are coming up this evening at 6.30. Is it 6.30? For the uh, Adult Christmas Fellowship. And we always have a great time with that. So if you are an adult and you're interested in some fellowship, I encourage you to come. Uh, 6.30, you see in the program what we ask you to bring for that. We'll have a white elephant gift exchange. So that's a, a gift for each person. So if you have two of you coming, then you each of you bring a gift. You don't put your name on it. You just wrap it. And it is a white elephant gift, as Larry's been explaining for weeks. In the announcements, that's something we you just want to get rid of. So uh, bring that. Kind of a gag-type gift. We always have some fun with that. But we also have appetizers and dessert. And we ask you to bring two items, an appetizer and either a dessert or a beverage, depending on uh, the first letter of your last name. And that's in the program. A through L brings one or the other. I can't remember which, but take a look at that. So you would come with two items in hand, an appetizer and a dessert or an appetizer and a a two-liter beverage for tonight's event. That's at 6.30 tonight. Our Wednesday midweek program is on semester break because of the holidays, so we won't meet this Wednesday or for the next few Wednesdays. We start back up on January the 18th. And I want to make sure you know what we're going to be doing in this hour over the next several weeks. Uh, Today, I conclude a mini-series that I started a few weeks ago. I'll remind you of what that is in just a bit. Next Sunday, uh, Christmas Day, we don't have uh, a Sunday School Discovering God Hour at all. We just have at 11 o'clock next week our worship service. So worship is not at 9.30 next week, uh, as usual, but rather at 11 o'clock, and that's the only service we have. Same thing for the following week, New Year's Day, one service, 11 o'clock worship. No Sunday school, no Discovering God on either of those days. On January the 8th, uh, during this uh, during this hour, uh, most of you will be in here for our members class. Usually we call that our new members class, and we offer that several times a year for those who have recently joined the church. But we're having that for everybody. So it's not just new members, it's everybody who's a member. And the reason is we've revamped uh, the material a bit, and we want everybody to be able to go through that together. So we're going to take four weeks in January during this hour uh, to go through that. Larry Castle is going to lead that. And meanwhile, those of you who are not members of our church, uh, we have our newcomers orientation during that same time. And I'll be leading that in one of our classrooms outside these doors and across the hallway during those four weeks. If you're new to our church and you're just taking a look to see if this is where God would have you to serve and grow, then we offer the newcomers orientation to help you make that decision. It's informational. I give you a a notebook of material. It tells you where we came from, uh, what, what, what we believe, what we hope to accomplish together in the future. But it's strictly informational. There's no pressure on you to actually join the church. When you finish that class, I don't follow up and uh, hound you. Nobody else does either. Uh, it just uh, helps you, assist you in making the decision. So if you're new to our church, mark that. Uh, January 8, 15, 22, and 29, those four weeks, we'll have the newcomer's orientation. Everybody else will be in here uh, in those four weeks for the members class. And then on February the 5th, we will get back to normal. And that is, we'll all be in here, and I'll start a new series on anger, How to Be Good and Angry, uh, is what we've we've titled it. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. Today, we are concluding this mini-series 
that I started uh, several weeks ago. Last week was to have been the third of four weeks. But uh, if you were one of the 50% of our membership who was here last week because of the snowstorm uh, that came in, so we've had about half of our normal crowd, we canceled the second hour, you may remember, uh, last week. So we didn't have this, this lesson uh, last week. So now I'm having to summarize it on uh, in three weeks rather than in four weeks uh, uh, as was intended. We just had worship last week and canceled this uh, second hour. So a few weeks ago, I started this series called A Matter of Interpretation. And at that time, I asked you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. And we saw in Matthew chapter 2 that the account of the birth of Jesus. And as part of that account, after his birth, you'll remember that Herod conspired to find him and to to kill him. He heard about this king that had been born. He would not countenance any rival kings, and so he wanted to have him killed. And he had instructed the wise men, after they find him, to report back to Herod as to his location. The wise men uh, were tipped off as to his intentions, uh, did not return to him and tell him. But uh, an, an angel uh, informed Joseph that they need to uh, leave uh, Nazareth and um, go to and go to well, leave Nazareth. And they did. They went to Egypt. And the Bible tells us in Matthew uh, chapter two that they went to Egypt. They ultimately left Egypt. And in Matthew two fifteen. It quotes a book in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, Hosea. And it says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So Matthew quotes Hosea, who wrote hundreds of years earlier, saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son. But what's interesting and somewhat difficult with what Matthew says is he not only just quotes that, but just before that he says, and this was to fulfill what was said by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. And so you look at that and you go, how does Joseph and Mary and Jesus going to Egypt and then coming out of Egypt fulfill what Hosea was talking about? When, if you look at Hosea, Hosea is not looking forward to anything. He's not predicting anything in Hosea 11. He's looking back at something that had happened hundreds of years prior. In the Exodus, in God bringing out his people through the leadership of Moses out of, out of Egypt. And Hosea is recalling that and saying, out of Egypt I have called my son. So how is it possible for Matthew to say that this is being fulfilled when it was really an historical event, not looking forward. Did Hosea mean something different than what the context suggests he meant? Did Hosea have two meanings to what he said? And my answer to those, both of those is no. He didn't mean two things. He meant one thing. He didn't have a deeper meaning. He had the meaning that the context of Hosea chapter 11 would give us. And the reason my answer is that, uh, I'm going to explain or remind you of here in a moment. Now, 
for these three weeks, you guys have been waiting for me to give some answer to. Well, then what does Matthew 2 mean when he quotes Hosea? And before we're done today, I'll give you some options with that. But I'm saying right now that I don't believe that one of those options should be that Matthew meant more than one thing. Or uh, that Matthew was referring to two things when he, or excuse me, Hosea meant more than one thing. Or that Hosea was referring to uh, something different than what the, the context of Hosea 11 would tell us. Now, why do I say you shouldn't use those options? Why do I say those should not be the answers you give to how Matthew is quoting Hosea? Here's why. Over these last few weeks, in this series called A Matter of Interpretation, we've looked at four principles of interpretation that have to be used... Uh, in, three of those four have to be used in uh, interpreting any communication. Spoken communication, written communication, old communication like the Bible, contemporary communication. No matter what it is, three of these four always apply. And we've looked at these already. I remind you of what they are. A text cannot mean what it never meant. A text or, or a communication cannot mean today something different than what it meant at the time it was delivered, at the time it was given. And so that is tied to, as we saw a few weeks ago, what's called authorial intent. Whoever's, whoever the author is, whoever the speaker is, intends to convey a meaning in their speaking or writing. And whatever they intended to convey, as evidenced in the context, and the contexts are several. We, we saw there's historical context, and, uh, and there is a literary context and grammatical context. But you place a passage or a speech in its context, and that author, that speaker, intended to convey a message. It intended to convey one thing. So a text cannot mean what it never meant. Hosea can't mean at the time of Matthew something it never meant at the time Matthew wrote it or the time Hosea wrote it. So that's the first principle. The other one is not all texts are alike. And then we saw that the Bible's 66 books are comprised of different kinds of books. You have narrative sections of the Bible. You have Proverbs which are not legal guarantees, but general truths. That's what a proverb is. You have psalms, which are, which are poetry and to be interpreted as, as such. You have the letters of the New Testament, which are more direct communication like we're familiar with, with direct statements and commands. And so the interpretation is more straightforward in those than it is in these other kinds of kinds of things. But those have to be taken into consideration. What kind of book is it? So the second principle that came out of that is all texts are not alike. You've got different kinds of books that are of different genres. They're called different types. And so you have to take that into consideration. And then the third principle was, uh, was this, that... That language speaks, this is not the principle, this leads up to the principle. Language speaks univocally. Uh, language is univocal, that is, one voice. 
And if that were not the case, I said, really, you, you would only need one word to have a language because that word could mean anything in, in any given context. But a word only means something in a particular context, right? When you want to know what a word means and you look it up in the dictionary, it may have four or five possible meanings, but in that particular speech or that particular composition, it only means one of those. And the principle that comes out of that then is a text has only one meaning. So it can't mean what it never meant. All texts are not alike, and a text has only one meaning. Now, those three principles are true of all communication. Those three principles are true of my communication to you right now. That as I speak to you and I say what I'm saying, you don't have the right to leave here and to add a second meaning or a third meaning to what I intend to communicate to you. You don't have the ethical right to take my words out of context and assign a different meaning to them because what I'm saying to you has only one meaning or, and, and it cannot mean what it never meant. And I'm speaking to you in a particular way. I'm speaking to you in a lecture, speaking to you in a particular type of context that you're familiar with. And so you know how to place what I'm saying in that context because we're contemporary, we're local, you've seen this, you've been in classes, you've been in church, you know how to do that. And then what I'm saying to you has only one meaning. What I'm saying doesn't have five meanings, it doesn't have three meanings, it has, it has one. So those principles apply to all communication, not just the Bible. But with the Bible, you have to think about it. As I'm talking to you, you don't have to really think about that stuff. You just automatically do it. And the reason you're able to automatically do it is because you're familiar with my words, because we live at the same place and at the same time. And so any idioms that I use, any figures of speech that I use and all of that, you're likely to be familiar with. You don't have to think a whole lot. You don't have to work at it. But with the Bible, you have to work at it. Because the last book of the Bible was written nearly 2,000 years ago. But you're doing the same thing. That's the point. So please understand that those principles apply to everything. What I'm saying right now, but also to the Bible and every other communication. Now, the Bible has a fourth principle that we need to use uh, that doesn't apply to every type of communication. So I admit that this is an exception with the Bible. Uh, and, and that is, and that is this, that the Bible, uh, communicates a unified message. And two weeks ago, we left off with that. The Bible communicates a unified message. Now I say that that's, that is, uh, in some ways unique to the Bible because, you know, the Bible does have this uniqueness to it. You've got 66 books, but it's got 40 different human authors. Some of those authors wrote more than one book. Paul wrote 13 in the New Testament. So you have 66 books, 40 different human authors, but behind those 40 different human authors is one ultimate author, God. That God is guiding, superintending what they did. So that what they wrote was what God wanted written. It's them writing, it's their personalities, it's their language, it's their style. But God is using them to produce what he wants. He's guiding the process. 
That's what we call inspiration. That's why we say the Bible is inspired. All right. Now, in the normal case, if you had 40 people writing books over different periods of time, hundreds of years apart in different places, what are the chances that those 40 authors would agree with each other in what they say? The chances are none. You couldn't get five people today in a room to do that. So how is it that the Bible can communicate this unified message? It's because ultimately it has this one author. And God guaranteed then in his supervision providentially of the human writers that what they wrote is what he wanted written and God doesn't contradict himself. So here's what that means practically as I look at the Bible. If I see a passage in the Bible that appears to contradict another passage that I read somewhere else, then i got to take a second look at that, or a third look, or a fourth look. Because I know it can't contradict itself. Because it communicates a unified message because it came from God. So there are such passages where you'll read something, and then you read something over here, and you go, boy, at first take, that looks like they're saying different things, opposite things contradictory things. I need to take another look. And if you will take that another look, second look or third look, you can always harmonize what the Bible says. Now, I want to give you an example of that. In uh, Romans, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 in verses 3 through 5. Romans 4, 3 through 5. Paul, who wrote Romans, says that... God justifies the wicked. That's what it says, justifies the wicked. Now, justifies, many of you know, means God declares to be righteous. He declares someone to be righteous. It doesn't mean they are righteous, but he judges them to be righteous. On the basis, Paul tells us in Romans 3 and 4, on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. On the basis of his righteousness, God declares those who believe in Jesus to be righteous. But God justifies, declares to be righteous, the wicked. People who are not, in fact, righteous. That's actually good news for us. Because there is no one righteous, not even one, Romans 3 says. None of us are righteous. So therefore, if God doesn't do this, we can't have a relationship with him. But Christ supplied the righteousness we don't have, and God declares us to be righteous on the basis of the perfect life of Jesus. He justifies the wicked. But then, but then it goes on to say in that passage, he does this by faith, and here's the phrase, apart from works. He justifies the wicked, and he does it apart from works. That you don't do something in order to get this justification. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Right? All right. So you get Romans 4, Ephesians 2. Okay. We're justified. We're saved. By faith, by believing in what Jesus did apart from what we do. We're all good with that? All right. 
But then James comes along and messes everything up. Because if you look at James chapter 2, James chapter 2, that's what Romans 4 and Ephesians 2 and other passages say. But then you get James chapter 2. And verse 17. Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, that is works, deeds, is dead. So, you know, I was just going along reading my Bible, minding my own business, doing my one year through the Bible. I encountered the books of Paul before I ever got to James. I got Romans chapter 4, I got Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going along fine, and then I hit later James chapter 2, and I read that, and I go, well, what's up with that? Because I know I read several weeks ago in my Bible reading plan that you're saved apart from works. So how can James then say that faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead? i got to take another look at that now. I got to take a second look because the Bible can't contradict itself, right? It communicates because it's God. So I now need to harmonize those somehow. I need to do some more work on that. So here's a way that I would suggest to you that you harmonize those passages. That both Paul and James believe the same thing about the means through which we are saved, the means through which we are justified. They both believe it's by faith, and they both believe it's by faith alone, not by works. That they both believe that. But in Romans 4, and in Ephesians 2, they're answering different questions. Paul in Romans is answering this question. How is a person justified? How is a person justified? And his answer is by faith alone, apart from what you do. His question is, how is a person justified? That's what he's answering in Romans. James is asking and answering a different question. He agrees with Paul on the question and answer in Romans. How is a person justified? By faith alone, apart from works. But James is asking and answering a different question. And his question is this. Yes, you are saved, justified by faith alone. But here's the question. What kind of faith saves you? What kind of faith justifies you? Yes, it's faith, but what kind of faith? Now, how do I know that that's what he's talking about? I quoted for you James 2.17. Faith, if not accompanied by works, is dead. But just three verses before that, this is how he starts the discussion, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, no works? Now, notice the question. Can such faith save him? Can some translations say, can that faith save him? Do you see he's talking about a particular kind of faith? It's still faith, 
but it's a kind of faith, a faith that is accompanied by works. You believe in Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and you are saved, you are justified. But the kind of faith that saves is a faith that produces works in the life of the believer. It's accompanied by works. It results in works. So Martin Luther said it this way. We are saved by faith alone. But not by a faith that remains alone. You're saved by faith alone. But those who believe then are changed. And they do. And then James is saying, and if you don't do, then that's evidence you haven't truly believed. So it's a quality of faith. It's a type of faith. It's such faith. Can that kind of faith save them? But the only way I get to that is by taking a second look. You know, when I first read it, I go, man, they're saying different things. They're contradicting each other. So every apparent contradiction in the Bible, that's what that was, apparent Contradiction is not a real contradiction. But sometimes you have to take a second and third look. And you take that second and third look because you're committed to these principles, in particular this principle of the Bible communicating a unified message. All right. So that being the case, now let's talk about Matthew and Hosea again. You've got these principles that apply to all communication. And so when you read Matthew saying something that it does apparently look like he's going, Hosea predicted this back in Hosea chapter 11. And now here it is happening in the life of Jesus and Mary and Joseph. That's what it looks like when you first read Matthew 2.15. But what it looks like apparently can't be real because a text cannot mean what it never meant. And a text has, Hosea 11 has only one meeting, like every other text. So you've got to take another look at it. So when Matthew 2.15 says, when they had gone, that is the, the, uh, the wise men had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Verse 14 of Matthew 2, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So what can you do with it? You know, did Hosea have two meanings, four meanings, six meanings? Was Hosea actually predicting something when the context of Hosea 11 has no indication that it's a prediction at all. So you should wipe all of those off the board. And here are a couple of ways for you to harmonize those. One is the word fulfill in Matthew 2.15 when it says, and so was fulfilled. When we read the word fulfilled, often we think of a prediction that was made in the first part of the Bible that came to pass in the New Testament. So it predicted, it was promised, and then it happened. And we read the word fulfilled, and that's the way, the way we think of it. But what's called the semantic range of fulfill uh, is actually broader than that. 
uh, fulfill is used in a bunch of contexts. And they are sometimes that, that something was promised before, predicted before, and then came to pass, and so it's fulfilled. But the word fulfill can also be used to be just an analogy. It's used that way, an analogy. This is like that. This is like, or almost like, this reminds me of what happened back then. It's analogous to what happened back then. And the word fulfill is used that way. It's within its semantic range to use it analogously. This is like that. So that's one option, and I think personally a very good option, as to what Matthew is doing. Another one is related related to that, and that is that that writers in biblical times and even in the Bible would use what's called borrowed language. And they would use Old Testament language as a vehicle of, of expression. So two authors who explain this say the speech of a person raised on the classics, so in our day, somebody who's raised on the classics and classical writings sprinkles their speeches and their writings with terms and idioms that are drawn from those texts. Similarly, the New Testament writers sometimes use Old Testament language as a vehicle of expression without intending to provide a correct interpretation of the Old Testament text that they're quoting. So they'll sprinkle, and you'll, you'll hear people do this uh, speaking today, and they'll make references to literature or passages and all of that, but they're not always, in fact, often, they're not putting that quotation in the exact context of the person who originally wrote it. So a summary way to look at it is it's analogous. This is like that. And related to that is speakers and writers often use, even in our day, expressions from other writings that they sprinkle into their writings that will provoke thoughts with people, send them back to thinking about a particular event. But there's nothing in Matthew that suggests that Matthew is now changing the meaning of Hosea. But many people are just fine to say, well, okay, Matthew's using it this way, so therefore Hosea must have meant not one thing, but two things, or four things, or five things. And immediately they discard the principles that they agreed to earlier. Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you were with me for the first couple of weeks. Maybe even for the first 30 minutes of this session when I repeated, a text cannot mean what it never meant. And you're going, yep, that makes sense. And then you read Matthew 2 and you go, well, I guess it can mean something it didn't mean in Hosea's time. And I'm suggesting don't do that. Don't violate what are called the received laws of language. Don't do that because it will really mess you up. It'll mess you up in your interpretation of the Bible. It'll mess you up in your ability to communicate with anybody if if you do that. So let me explain that. What I mean by the received laws of language. You've only got 12 minutes to go, so stay with me. I mean, why is it that I go looking for an alternate explanation to 
what Hosea meant or what Matthew means by using Hosea. It's because I'm pre-committed to some principles, some necessary, indispensable principles. I've gone through those principles with you. And those principles are derived out of this heading called the received laws of language. Now, what is that? Here's what that means. The laws of language are received, one author says, by divine grant and are, just stay with me on this, a priori axioms necessary to the coherent, intelligible reading of anything. They must be assumed before they can be demonstrated. What's that mean? It means this. I mean, that's highfalutin language, but here's what it means. That you have to assume that language only has one meaning. You have to assume that a text can't mean what it never meant. You have to assume all of that in order to be able to communicate at all. They have to be assumed before they can be demonstrated. Language is one of those things that you just got to have and it's just got to work. And if you don't have it and it doesn't work, then you can't communicate anything accurately. So let's bring it together in terms of God and us as his creatures and how he's given us this ability to speak and to communicate and to write. God makes, God creates, God fashions the universe, God creates the animals, but amongst his creatures, he creates one creature that is above them all, the Bible teaches, and that's humanity. And he makes humanity unique because he makes humanity in his image, right? And if you read Roman, or excuse me, Genesis uh, 1, you find that uh, you've got a cadence to Genesis 1. And God said, let there be, and there was. And the evening and the morning were. And God said, let there be, and there was. And you've got God talking, and he's saying, let things come into existence. He's just speaking into the air, as it were, and things are coming into existence. And it was. But then the cadence is broken in verse 26 of Genesis 1. Because it says, not just, and God said into the air, it says this, and God said to them, to them. God said to the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply. He's talking to the man and the woman. Now here's the question. To what school did the man and the woman go to learn language? How long had Adam and Eve been studying in order to figure out what this person who shows up in the garden every so often is saying to them? And the answer is nowhere. They just understand him. Why? Because they're made to do that. This is part of being made in the image of God. Those of you that have newborns, we got some people in here with newborns. Those of you can remember your newborns. Are you not absolutely amazed at how they master language? 
They just hear stuff and they put the stuff together. How do they do that? They were made to do that. Made in the image of God. And that's why I call them the received laws of language. This is just stuff we have. And apart from us having it, we can't communicate anything to each other. Now stay with me. Not only that, not only would we not be able to understand God, understand each other, but apart from these principles that we've gone through that derive from the received laws of language, apart from that, you wouldn't be able to disprove anything that I'm saying. Let's say you're sitting here and you're going, you know, Brown, I don't know, man. Sounds a little philosophical to me. Sounds a little highfalutin to me. I'm not so sure. I'm going to put an argument together to disprove what you're saying. So here's what I'm going to say to you. You have to assume the truth of what I'm saying to even try to disprove it. Because how are you going to disprove it? What are you going to use? You're going to use language. And you're going to have to use language exactly the way I'm talking about. That's why the received laws of language and the principles that derive from it are what, in, are what are called transcendental. That's my last big word. It's a transcendental. That is, it has to be assumed in order to be disproven. You have to start with it. You have to start with it. Let me give you an example. Some of you are familiar with the discipline of apologetics. The word uh, apologia is a Greek word in your New Testament. It means defense. And so apologetics is the defense of the faith. Well, there are lots of arguments over the years that have been used as defenses of the Christian faith. But one of those, and the one that I think is actually the most effective, is called the transcendental argument for the existence of God. And here's what that means. You have to assume God in order to disprove him. And you'll find that to be the case when you hear people argue against the existence of God. You've, you've heard this before. Maybe you've engaged someone who claims to be an atheist before. Now notice I said claims to be an atheist. You know, the Bible teaches there are no real philosophical atheists. Because everyone is born with the inherent image of God, one. They're born with the knowledge of God, a conscience that only he can give. Romans chapter 1, by creation they know his existence. That's why Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Not the ignorant one, not the dumb one. Not the, no, these guys are often very intelligent, guys and gals. It's the fool. Why the fool has said. Remember, wisdom is the application of knowledge. It's applying what you know. The opposite foolishness is failing to apply what you know. And the fool is failing to apply what they know. They know there's a God, but they're failing to apply that. They're failing to appropriate that. So when you're, when you're arguing with someone who professes to be an atheist, you know, there are no real philosophical atheists. An atheist says, I don't believe in God. God is saying in the Bible, I don't believe in atheists. There aren't any, really. But they say that. And the argument will very quickly go to something like this. How could a God 
How could a good God allow people to, and you've heard that, right? Suffer and Christopher Hitchens, now deceased. I think it was his last book. Uh, God is not good was the title of the book. But I'm saying you have to assume God to try to disprove him. Because Hitchens and all the rest who say, how could a good God do this? Hear this. They're assuming a definition of what's good. And where do you get that? They're assuming a universal definition of what's good. Where do you get that? How can it be a un- How can it be? It's not. Let's do we all agree? It's not good when an earthquake happens and a thousand people die. Anybody disagree with that? We all agree that that's not good. Christopher Hitchens agrees that that's not good. I agree that that's not good. My question for you, Christopher, is how did you find out what's good? From where did you get what's good? And how is that universal for everybody? That certain things are good and certain things are bad. Where did you get that? And how then can you write a book that God is not good without knowing how to define good at all? Douglas Wilson is a Christian pastor who debated Christopher Hitchens many, many times and got the best of him every time using exactly the transcendental argument that I just mentioned. So a transcendental is something that has to be assumed in order to be disproven. And the received laws of language fit into, fit into that category. Now, in the remaining few minutes then, why did I spend three lessons going through this? Why do we care about any of this? Here's why. Because it will affect the way you interpret the Bible. These principles that we've gone through need to be adhered to all the time when you listen or read anything, and that includes the Bible. A text cannot mean what it never meant. A text has only only one meaning. And if you abandon that in the Bible, you will misinterpret the Bible. I'll give you... An example, a very important one, and then we'll be done. Maybe in the summer, after we're done with the anger series, the summertime, I get to do just like a long series in the summer on whatever I feel like. So maybe I'll just do a whole thing on various areas where this kind of thing now affects us. And why you have different Christians with different interpretations. It's because it is a matter of interpretation. And we're not all following the same rules. People, good people, use these rules all the time. But then when they go to the Bible, they lose their minds. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind, but they just sort of say, okay, that's st- I chucked that stuff. So here's an example, a very important one. I encourage you, as you read through your Bible, to look at Israel. And look at the first part of your Bible, and as you just read through it, just what is Israel? As you read through the first part of the Bible, well, I, I would suggest to you that Israel, just reading through your Bible, is a nation, that Israel is a people, the Jews, God's chosen people, to whom God makes promises of land, of land that they haven't had yet. He gives the boundaries of the land that they haven't had yet. It's a nation 
of people, the Jews, to whom promises are made, including a land to be given and a kingdom to be established, in which they as a nation will rule the nations. Now, as you read through your Bible, I'm just telling you, think about Israel and think about if I made that up. Or think about when you read through it, if that's what that is. That's what it is throughout the entire first part of your Bible. So when you come to the second part of your Bible, the New Testament, if you follow these principles, Israel remains that. What Israel is, what Israel means, remains that. A nation of chosen people, the Jews, who are promised a land and a future kingdom where they will, as a nation, rule other nations. It remains that even into the New Testament. Now, did you know there are lots of Christian people who go, when you get to the New Testament, they see the word Israel and they don't read that. Here's what they read. The church. Israel has become the church. And I'm going, no, it hasn't. A text cannot mean what it ever meant. It meant that. It was promised to them. And it's going to happen as God said it there. But that's all based on these principles. If you abandon those principles, now you can spiritualize. You can allegorize. But please understand, you are abandoning those principles. Now, I'll give you one example of how in the New Testament, Israel was intended to mean what it always meant and will be done. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And Acts, you know, is the fifth book in your New Testament. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. You've got the life and ministry of Jesus on earth. And then Jesus ascends back to the Father. He gives final instructions to his first followers, what we call the Great Commission. And then Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, writes now a sequel to his Gospel, the book of Acts. And Luke says in verse 1 of chapter 1, in my former book, Theophilus, his former book is the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, just that kingdom thing. Remember I said Israel is a nation of chosen people with promises like a land and then a kingdom where they will rule and all that. Remember that? He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, verse 4, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And now notice verse 6. Then they gathered around him. These are the apostles that have been with him for three years. They've heard him teach about the kingdom of God. And they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
what did, what was that? What was the kingdom? Who is Israel? These guys still think that it's a nation to whom promises and a, and a people to whom promises have been made and that there's going to be this kingdom where it's going to be restored to them. And Jesus doesn't say to them, hey, don't you guys know that that stuff was allegorical? Don't you guys know that there were two meanings to the stuff that was in the Old Testament that you're talking about here? He doesn't say any of that. Here's what he says. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. He doesn't correct them. Why? Because that stuff's still going to happen. Israel is still a nation and still a chosen people that has been promised things like a land and there is going to be a kingdom where they will rule over the nations. And that doesn't change in the New Testament. You read that consistently. A text cannot mean what it never meant. A text has only one meaning. And you do that, and I said in the very first week, if you do that consistently, you'll be what's called a dispensationalist. So I encourage you to do that. Read Israel that way. Read Jews that way all the way through your Bible. And you see what what God's plan is then for his people and this kingdom that he promised. If you don't read it that way, now Israel becomes the church and you have a widely different interpretation of things now and things in the, and things in the future. All right, that's as much as I can say about it because I am over time. Thank you for your patience. I'll pray in just a moment, but I remind you tonight we have our adult Christmas fellowship and for that we have to set up in here. So, men, any of you who can, if you're not able to stay, it's okay. We're not looking at who's leaving and going, okay, we got your number. You didn't, if you have to leave, that's fine. If you're not able to help physically or any of that, that's all fine too. But any of you guys who can, we're asking you to stay right now because we want to set up in here for tonight's, uh, for tonight's fellowship. That screen shows the way it needs to be arranged. And Travis Ma is going to lead that for us. Where is Travis? So come on up here, Travis. And Travis will direct you guys from the microphone up here as to what to what to do after I pray. So after I'm done praying, any guys who can stay, stay. Ladies, vacate the room and we'll go from there. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessings of this Lord's Day, the opportunity to be with your people, to learn from your word. Lord, we ask you to go with us this week as we serve you. Help us to apply what we have heard. Help us to be uh, accurate representatives, accurate ambassadors for Christ in both word and deed. We ask you to grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.